Hello, I'm Stuart Preston, and this is the Stone Ape Reports, where I have conversations with those who have changed their lives with the power of psychedelics. Please note, if you are considering working with psychedelics, stay legal and stay safe. Do your research, understand contraindications, test all substances. Psychedelics are not for everybody. Quick announcement, I now have a book out titled The Grief Trip, How I Learned to Heal with Grief and Psychedelics. You can find it at thegrieftrip.com. 100% of proceeds go to the Ian Preston Memorial Fund to help support mental health and suicide prevention. Okay, in this episode, I had the real honor of speaking with the founders of the decriminalized nature movement going across America, Carlos Pasola and Larry Norris. Each of them shared their personal stoned ape story as well as updating us on what's going on with decriminalized nature. I highly recommend getting involved. Check the links in the text to find your local group. So please enjoy this conversation with Carlos and Larry. Welcome to the Stone Ape Reports. Carlos and Larry, really honored to have you guys here. You know, we've, we've gone back and forth um, involved. I've been lucky to be involved in your decrim movement that you guys have created. And so I'm honored to have you guys both here. And I'm looking forward to kind of hearing your Stone Ape stories and, and what the what the medicines mean to, to each of you individually. So first of all, thank you for being here and uh, welcome to Stone Ape Reports. And thank you, Stuart. Thank you for having us. Yeah, glad to be here, Stuart. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Carlos, we'll start with you. So what, you know, maybe you can share with us your, your uh, stoned ape story, you know, like what, what was going on in your life before psychedelics that maybe needed to be changed or maybe um, made better or improved or whatever it is that brought you to the plant medicines. And then maybe tell us a little bit about that experience and, and how things are different today. Yeah, thanks, Stuart. Uh, happy to. So, um, you know, often um, people wonder why I would be involved in, in this movement after just one very powerful mushroom journey in October of 2018. Um, and, uh, and then immediately seeking out folks like Larry and others to say, you know, these have to be decriminalized. It wasn't just, you know, it's <clears throat> five gram journey is very powerful, but it was everything that preceded that that really um, is what uh, was mind blowing and made it so powerful of a, of a journey. Uh, I've had a number since, but really that was the transformative one, um, the awakening one, if you will. And it was pretty much 30 years of efforts of trying to heal. Um, my story is that I uh, am the son of um, a Mexican indigenous uh, man who dropped out of school at, in third grade to support his um, mother who was very impoverished came to the United States, very young age to work, and uh, met my mother here in the US, um, and um, and then quickly moved back to Mexico. My parents divorced at a young age uh, when I was young, and um, and then so mom tried to raise us by herself in an urban environment in uh, East San Jose, and it was a, a tough community, tough way to grow up, and uh, filled with a lot of um, aggression and, um, and violence in, in community and household. Um, mom did her best, she was a beautiful human, but, um, it's tough to keep those things away from from young people. So uh, I grew up sort of with this deeper understanding that there's um, something beyond just my own individual human experience, particularly surrounded by aggression, and always sought to try to understand the human story. And uh, so in that way, I, I went to UCLA. I studied biology. This is after a lot of work as a young person. Um, studied biology, went to uh, Yale, studied, um, I got a master's in environmental science. And all of this was because I always had this very deep connection to nature um, and, uh, and humanity and life, really. Uh, I lived with the Ashwad for three months around the same time. And they are an indigenous group out of the uh, Amazon rainforest in Ecuador. 
And I lived with them with the intention of trying to sort of wake up this um, part of myself that really understood there was something deeper in the world. Um, and uh, but just had a very difficult time getting past the uh, trauma, which I now understand uh, to be the default mode network, as it's termed by some, which is this sort of thinking within this deep groove of uh, feeling threatened uh, by the world. And, um, and so your response for people who grow up in violence and aggression is always to see uh, everything as uh, an affront or, or aggressive acts towards the individual, always having to protect against external threats to the self. And I wanted to get past this. Um, so I lived my life trying that. Uh, I ran a lot. I did a lot of exercise, I, um, you know, yoga, meditation. But it wasn't until my mother died in 2013 and then I lost some family members soon thereafter, um, uh, very close family members that I went into this deep sort of nihilistic state of um, believing that life has no meaning. Oh. And that's where I found myself sort of in 2018, um, where uh, I could be surrounded by people who um, were very close to me, my children, my wife, and I just felt absolutely nothing. Um, and so life meant nothing. And uh, I just wanted to get out of that uh, and finally heal from um, trauma that I carried my whole life. So um, I heard about mushrooms and I went into this very kind of deep five gram journey by myself. I had my cousin watch the door, close the door behind me. And it was just my effort of trying to find hope in the world and, and beauty again. And, uh, and sure enough, uh, I was in that journey. I, was, I felt a deep connection to um, spirit. It helped me unpack my addiction to fear and this is something that i think people who grow up surrounded by trauma and violence yeah. don't understand is that they oftentimes will feel that addiction to fear as something that is they're so used to that they create uh situations of fear and anxiety because it's what they're comfortable with and so i i learned that you know i i met spirit and um and then from there i started working with um folks i I realized that um, these should not be criminalized. People need to heal from them. Went out, sought community, met Larry, met a bunch of other folks here in the Bay Area, and together we we started the journey of decrim nature. Awesome. So in that mushroom journey, it sounds like you already had a pretty good connection to nature and kind of a, a spirit realm. You know, what what within the the mushroom journey helped with this addiction to fear, this need for fear, and some of the angst around the, the trauma that you brought out of childhood. Did, was there anything within that journey or subsequent journeys that kind of helped you identify some of this stuff or understand it or eradicate it? Anything in there that helped you with that? Yeah, my connection to nature was always um, was always there. Since a young boy, I started gardening at 12 years old. My father was a, a farmer, so um, in Mexico, a small farm mm. was, was known as an ejidatario. I would go out and farm with him. So the connection to nature was there. It was the spirit that was missing. And I, my mother would say, you know, um, you, you need to believe in God. And I said, well, God, if God exists, uh, they made me rational. So until I meet him, um, I won't believe. Um, and so uh, in that journey, um, I met my um, own experience with God. Uh, I saw the infinite in fractal form um, and um, connected with, you know, what my own purpose of living is, which is uh, to be creative and to live from a place of love. And from there comes the, um, the meaning of being alive is that um, expression of love and creativity. Um, and but the part that helped me understand my fear um, or my living from fear was first the sort of dissolving of the ego was getting to a place where I can actually understand myself 
outside of this deep entrenchment mm -hmm. and fear and anxiety and then see myself almost as kind of third person uh, and understand myself. And of course, it's now we understand it's this deep, this uh, growth of all the neurons across your brain that um, is in, in, uh, instigated by the um, psilocybin and the serotonin 2A receptor. Uh, but, um, and as I was coming out of the uh, deep entrenchment of fear and anxiety, I was having a conversation um, with something, someone, um, either the higher self or spirit, but the conversation, I was asking the deepest questions that I have ever had in my life. And they were being answered with, with such deep profundity and wisdom that it was not my own voice, at least not my own voice in, in this material realm. Uh, and that was some, probably the biggest thing that convinced me I was talking to something much higher than the self I had experienced my whole life was, you know, um, how do I find joy? And it was, uh, you're addicted to fear, you have to choose love, and from love comes uh, creativity and beauty. And those kinds of answers were just things I'd never considered. I'd never thought I was yeah. addicted to fear. So uh, that was the experience. Yeah, it's a big one. And I, I never heard that term, addicted to fear, until now. So th those are some big lessons. How, how did you... Um, I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm still kind of, a, kind of a contrarian, so when people throw out things like uh, Jungian shadows and integration, I, I tend to like, oh, yeah, but you learn these lessons, right? You know, these, these things that came out of this. Did, did you have some purposeful way to incorporate it into your life, to integrate it, so to speak, and, and carry it on? Or was it something that kind of the light went on and, and then you just kind of grokked it? You know, you kind of understood what was happening and that, that in and of itself was, was helpful. I mean, how did that go forward in your life to help you going forward? Well, the, the light went on. It was a holy shit moment. Spirit is real. Um, and, and I don't know what spirit is, right? So I'm, I'm not claiming here's what it is uh, yeah. because a subsequent journey where I asked that question, like what is on the other side? I want to you know, show me everything. And, uh, and then my, that was a, about an eight gram mushroom journey. Hmm. And the answer was, uh, you know, oh, you think you want to know everything. And there was a <laughs> massive download of information, so massive that I realized my small, feeble material human brain can't uh, conceptualize the infinite. Hmm. Um, and so that's where I, I would just recognize and accepted the great mystery there's so much about what's beyond this world that we simply can't know uh and it's acceptance of that that um was my final sort of path towards healing was uh, that that sort of material scientific side of myself wanted to know everything that there is to know so before i die i've figured it all out yeah. uh and uh, and then it's just acceptance that um uh, there's something greater than than the self at least in this material realm and and that was the the final healing part for me I get it, man. I, I have a very, very similar experience of being a rational minded person and wanting to know things in a scientific way. So I, and, and experiencing things that were not in that realm. So I, I totally get it. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Larry. So what's uh, welcome. Welcome to the show. You know, Larry, thank you for doing this. Uh, good to see you again. Um, yeah. So what's your what's your story? Like what was going on in your life that needed needed fixing or just to get better, you know, it doesn't have to be a problem to fix. It could be something you just needed to improve, but whatever it was, what was going on in your life? And then how did you end up, you know, with the medicines and how did things get better? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, this conversation that's already kind of been opened up here is a, a good lead into what, uh, what, you know, the experience that I can share and also kind of in the spirit of the podcast title, which is the stone Dave, which I think is an mm. interesting thing because that led me um, to some, some research that I hadn't been familiar with before. So same with me, I was, um, you know, always, um, very in tune with nature. I had an uncle who would take me out and we'd, you know, uh, you know, uh, 
track deer and things like that. So like I was mm. very connected as living in Michigan at the time. So that nature was a big part of my life, but I was also seeing everything from the rational mind, you know, it's, that was just mm. kind of, there wasn't really too much conversation about spirit unless it was in, involved with organized religion and those different types of things. So I went to the university of Michigan. Um, I studied on, uh, it was called biopsychology and cognitive science and uh, graduated in 98. That was before it was called neuroscience. Uh, so basically, you know, looking at the neurons in the brain to see how things react and things like that. So, um, you know, that was very interesting to me, but I was in this sort of reductionist mechanistic worldview. So that's why it made sense to me. Uh, at the same time, I was lucky enough to come across somebody um, who her name is amazing for somebody that's introducing you to experiences. And her name was Phoenix. <laughs> that's appropriate. Love it. And she uh, and she really was like, hey, you know, if you're going to do these experiences, you know, because you see friends that were going out and, you know, partying or doing other things or whatever. And she's like, that's that's kind of a waste of your time. Like, sit down, close your eyes, go inward and see that inner experience, like explore consciousness. You know, for me, at you know, 19, 20 years old, that was pretty profound because, um, you know, all of a sudden there was a whole new world that opens up, which is always funny. Why I hear today people talk about, oh, you should do psychedelics with virtual reality. The psychedelic, you know, they already give you the virtual. Just close your eyes. <laughs> That's crazy. You have to do that, right? So yeah. Um, so uh, so so that was kind of interesting to me because now I have this sort of inner experience from my personal experience of mushrooms and looking at consciousness, and then I have this academic experience where I'm looking at consciousness through neuroscience. Mm. A complete juxt, you know, a complete difference, I should say, between those two viewpoints. One says consciousness exists in the brain. The other says we're swimming in consciousness and everything is alive and everything is animate, right? And so, um, so that was really interesting to me. And it also helped me reconnect with a bunch of uh, ideas around nature and all that. And um, actually helped me to uh, set my course straight because towards the end of that career in my undergrad, I had to do a lot of animal research. And of oh. course, if you're doing mushrooms, <laughs> and experience, you uh -huh. said earlier, you, were, you became a vegan after some of your experiences, right? If you're doing mushroom experiences and then you wake up in the morning and you basically have to, you know, as far as I was viewing it, torture rats in the morning. You know, um, your first yeah. thing to do to find, you know, basically, you know, the study was, to, you know, in my opinion, sorry, you got Professor Burridge, but in my opinion, it was uh, just to get more grant money. You know, it's like I could have already right. what the, 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 you know, what the results were before we even did the study. But here we are having to do this stuff with rats. So, um, so also, but also during the course of this process in my university, I came across, I had an evolution class. And the evolution mm -hmm. class was the only the only professor in there that was actually, and this is interesting too, because 94, 98, Michigan wasn't really talking about psychedelic research, psychedelic experiences, right. all that type of thing, unless it was within this strict neuroscience mode. So um, so uh, I uh, came into my evolution class and he, I was like, hey, I want to do this paper. And he's like, as long as you follow the ideas of evolution, which is like natural selection, a mutation happens that benefits the community, and somehow that's going to help with reproduction and that type of thing, then go for it. You know, just stick with those. And so I was like, okay, well, that's great. So I started exploring the idea of like, and you'll, you'll know this from the, the Stone Day uh, title, is it possible that there was an evolution of human consciousness through accidental ingestion of mushrooms or other psychedelics that existed uh, anywhere in the mm -hmm. world. So I started looking at serotonin receptors and sensitivity to serotonin receptors and all the different things, you know, okay, if somebody has an experience, what does that, does that mean? Okay, well, there's maybe better bonding and, you know, sort of personal relationships, maybe there's an opportunity to hunt better because, you know, the eyes are able to see more and dark and that type of thing. So all these yeah. different sort of qualities that would make somebody have benefits for 
uh, evolution in a uh, sort of strict evolutionary uh, stance. So wrote the paper. It took me a couple of times. The professor at first was like, no, 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 you got to keep doing it. So I think he was all, there was also so the stigma around it. And even though he was open to it, he was still kind of giving right. me a time, right? Uh, so then I showed my that paper to my friend, uh, my roommate. And he says like, have you ever read Terrence McKenna? Yeah, like, you do, huh? this, this reminds me of the stone ape theory. And then, so that really opened my mind. Wow. Up. Oh, wait a second. There's neuroscience, which I thought there was the only way to study this. And then sort of that really introduced me to this whole philosophical, spiritual consciousness oriented approach to looking at psychedelics and entheogens. So that was pretty powerful for me. Um, and then in that process, you know, I kind of used, utilized that sort of opportunity to really um, obviously do, do a lot of healing as well as everyone's been saying here, but also really open up this idea of like, okay, well, there's much more than what I'm learning in class here. There's much more to this conversation. Um, and, you know, you talked about integration earlier. Uh, how do you make meaning of that? That isn't neuroscientific. How do you help somebody with a conversation around this topic that, you know, it's so profound, it's so outside, you know, you have a reductionist worldview and all of a sudden you have an experience of spirit. That's pretty mind shattering for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. There's a paradigm shift that has to happen there. And so how do you help people with that idea? How do you help people with those sort of concepts? And so that really started me on my path to where I am today. I actually just was in Ann Arbor this last weekend for Entheofest, which was a celebration of Mother Earth and her entheogenic plant and fungi gifts. And so here I was speaking on the University of Michigan Diag in a place wow. that 23 years earlier, I wasn't really allowed to talk about this topic. And now here we are. Wow. So the shift that happened in that amount of time is pretty amazing. But I think, you know, um, that's kind of the, the story that relates to this sort of podcast. But I think over the course of time, through mushrooms, through ayahuasca, through DMT, through other things as well, uh, just the profound sense of being able to uh, reflect on challenges, uh, to be able to go back and heal things that, um, you know, my friend has this great, uh, he had this great sort of quote says, you know, what this was in, in terms of his work with Ibogaine. And I haven't actually worked with Ibogaine myself, but I think it relates to a lot of other things. It's like it allowed him to go back to that experience with the emotion volume turned down. And reassess mm. everything that was going on without that That's sort of put that. you're in it, you know, so this is you're able to take a step back and really kind of review it again and gives you opportunity to really sort of see things from other people's perspectives, see how I was the asshole a lot of times, you know, sometimes you mm -hmm. think like, oh, well, this was somebody else doing this, but like, oh, wait, maybe I need to reflect on what, what, what I, my participation in this process. So, um, so I think that's one thing about these experiences that are pretty profound is that, um, it just really opens it up an opportunity for you to sort of reflect in deeper ways to connect with this higher wisdom, as Carlos was saying. I also have had this this challenge over the course of my life with mushrooms. I was like, oh, this is a higher level of consciousness. With ayahuasca, mm -hmm. it's like this is a wisdom figure that's beyond me. What is the what is now even the concept of plant consciousness? And that's something we are not really allowed to talk about in Western worldview anyway. You know, do, do plants have consciousness? Do they interact with us? Is it a dialogue? That's happening between us and the plant material and, and sacred medicines. And so, um, so those are the different types of things that I think are in Western culture is really hard mm -hmm. to touch on. But if you look at sort of indigenous traditions across the world, this is like, this is like the, the baseline. There's spirit. Right. Everything is alive. We're part of this greater continuum. We are nature, all these different types of things. So, um, so as we're in this sort of world where we see, talk about depression and anxiety and PTSD and da, 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 you know, all these studies, they talk about how this can be helpful for that, but it doesn't really talk about why it could be helpful. And we talk about this a lot, you know, it's because yeah. it's with nature and community and sacred and spirit and just the worldview we're in and embedded in doesn't allow for those conversations. So uh, this reinvigorates that and allows us to really tap into a deeper sense of self in that. So 
yeah so that yeah. was uh, sort of my little stone stone date report that's good i like it it's uh i don't i don't hear a lot of people say i hear a lot of people say they first tried it at 19 20 but they were like i was at a party and i had a really bad experience or it woke me up or i very rarely ever hear anybody that young actually going having the advice from the phoenix to you know to do, <laughs> no do this the right way and you know that's that's pretty rare and uh, just a side comment um Consciousness is a big thing for me also. I have another podcast called The Consciousness Podcast. I know, very creative. But there is an episode on there that you you might enjoy with uh, Dr. Donald Hoffman, where he talks about um, what what is reality and how is it affected by uh, evolution. Mm. So it's very, very interesting. Um, so I guess a caveat, I have to throw this out here every time, is, you know, I don't recommend anybody does psychedelics. If you do it, do it in a, in a safe environment, in a legal environment. Um, do all your research around this. Don't just dive into this. So just quick caveat. I put that in the intro too. But that said, you guys have both talked. You know, Carlos, your first experience um, was a very, a very deep experience, five grams. You know, a lot of people will build up to that. But some people I have heard do start that deep. But you know, you went in, went into the, the home or the room or whatever, closed the door, had your friend on the outside watching the door. Um, what, what kind of things would you recommend somebody who's listening to this and is, is dealing with similar things or is on a similar path? What, what recommendations would you guys have for somebody who's, who's just first looking to, to, to do this and try this and so that they have a, a good, safe, and possibly profound experience? Yeah. Uh, so the first thing I'd recommend, and, and I guess the reason it was a, a good experience for me is I was ready for it. I'd had a lot of conversa internal conversations about um, where I needed to go and I was trusting myself. Um, mm -hmm. So I would encourage first is really do the inward conversation. Are you ready for this? What are you ready for? What are you looking to get out of it? Uh, you know, slow down, meditate um, on the topic. And then find your path. And your path could consist of talking to a bunch of friends who may have had experiences with this, do your research, and familiarize yourself with uh, what it is that you want to do. So the material, the, the plants uh, that you're going to sit with, and, and then figure out the best approach for you um, in, through talking to people. Uh, and then follow your gut and your instinct. I think we undervalue so often in the Western world the um, the 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 um, the individual's ab ability to heal themselves. Oftentimes, what's lacking isn't the um, the the good wise choices of the individual. It's options of knowing what's available or of mm -hmm. knowing what's available as options. And and that's really what decrim nature is trying to uh, undo: is the suppression of information about good options of of healing and uh, allowing the information to emerge in society, as is happening here in Oakland, the first city to decriminalize all antigens. Um, there's conversations constantly now happening in communities, black communities, brown communities, immigrant, uh, mainstream communities, in restaurants and bars and parks now about entheogens. And the, the, the conversations are ubiquitous, which means that if somebody's looking for information about how to heal, they're, they're going to find the information. If they ask just a few people, they'll find their path to, to a good source of information. And, and you know, I, I often use the analogy of if you're going to if you're having children and you want to explore who a good midwife is in your area, if you want to be held in ceremony, for example, um, in looking for a midwife, you do a lot of cross-reference checks. My wife and I had three children with, with midwives. Um, and we came to that conclusion after researching Western medicine. Did it work for giving birth? Well, it wasn't really all that natural. Um, midwifery is the oldest uh, institution for delivering children. 
so we went with midwifery and and then you know we did internet searches but we also more importantly relied on word of mouth and finding the good people versus necessarily the charlatans as you might find in plant medicine yeah. uh, that information will will rise to the surface so i recommend just take your time do your research and and trust your inst- instincts but sit sit with your own um, voice for a while and uh, come to terms with what you're looking for yeah great advice larry you got any input yeah so i would say um you know uh there's a lot of different layers, like depending upon what you're doing, you know, so uh, something mm-hmm. like an ayahuasca experience or any boga experience, I would probably say, you know, make sure that you're sitting with somebody that's, you know, a good facilitator, somebody that knows, you know, what to do, that knows the practices, that knows the techniques, that knows the songs, that knows the sopladas, knows, knows how to cleanse the area or to set up the ceremony or hold space, that different type of thing, because uh, those medicines are much deeper and uh, maybe could, could utilize a little bit extra support in terms of mushrooms. You know, I mean, one thing that's, that's, you know, I mean, there's plenty of studies that show mushrooms are some of the, the least toxic and, you know, some of the, uh, the, the quote unquote, relatively speaking, safer, um, you know, materials you can work with with alcohol being like at the very top. And right. Right. And people can go out and, you know, buy, you know, uh, all this alcohol and, uh, you know, and, uh, um, and die that's just part as yeah that's just part of part or you can eat as many poisonous mushrooms as you want so you know so the idea of um uh you know uh the safety profile for mushrooms is is pretty is pretty high um, Mm -hmm. relatively speaking um but what i would say with that is just like i was saying go through the preparation process so really kind of prepare yourself for that experience could look like um you know kind of do a little bit of research but not so much that you're inundated or saturated with other people's experiences um, and then, you know, uh, start, start small, you know, start at a lower dose, uh, understand that a microdose is significantly different than a macrodose. So if you take some microdoses and you think, oh, this is the experience. And then I'll take oh, yeah, a little yeah. bit more then I'll send you like, whoa, this is not what I expected here. Right? Yeah. So, um, but, uh, but for me personally, you know, I think, um, if you, you know, this is, I speak for myself, uh, for other people on your audience, maybe this is good or not good. Um, but I think, you know, going solo style or going with like a, an, another individual, like I said earlier with Phoenix, you know, like we just both sat quietly together. You know, we weren't mm-hmm. interacting, we weren't engaging in conversation because one thing about conversation, this is one thing that is, you know, for me a little not concerning, but something to just be aware of in terms of the dynamic of the ther- therapeutic dynamic that's happening. And sometimes there'll be conversations, sometimes there'll be um, another person there, there'll be dialed, there'll be things that'll be happening that could influence the experience in a way that may or may not be the direction you're looking for. And so really it's the conversation between you and the mushroom. And this is something that Clint E.E., who's out of Detroit, talked about a lot. It's, it's just this conversation is between you and the mushroom. You close your mm-hmm. eyes. You don't need anyone else in the room. Maybe somebody there to give you water if you need or make sure you don't bump your head or something like that. But at the end of the day, it's really just you and the experience. And so to really just go inward, to go deep inward and to really sort of um, allow yourself to explore these these places, uh, you know, and um, and, you know, maybe play a little music or, you know, do a little meditation beforehand. But um, I think that that is really can be really powerful because you don't have then this external thing that's keeping you out of your experience. You know, I think yeah. there's uh, somebody, I forgot who it was, that quoted uh, saying, you know, um, when you're with a therapist, you know, this is just kind of like the idea of the sort of conversation with with the mushrooms itself. Uh, when you're with the therapist, there's always an opportunity to edit. When you're with the mushrooms, there's no chance of editing. You're just seeing it straight through. And so it's, it's again, you and that conversation with the mushrooms. And if somebody's outside of that experience and doesn't know what you're going through internally, 
they might sort of direct things in a different way. And so yeah. uh, that's, again, what Carlos was saying, this whole idea of decrim nature is a self-agency around the healing process, around the sovereignty of your own consciousness. And yes, if you want to have somebody sit with you, that's great, but also know that these experiences are powerful and they're for you and they're about your relationship to nature and the sacred. I love it. I love it. And I want to get into the decrim nature here before we finish, but also, uh, Carlos, I want to ask you about peyote. What is it you want to tell us about peyote? Oh, so um, we, we took a position as the organization Decriminalized Nature, which was to decriminalize cultivation of peyote in the United States. And I wanted to speak to the importance of that. Peyote is already decriminalized in a number of European countries, Sweden, uh, UK, uh, Germany. Um, and um, currently, and, and the reason I uh, wanted to speak of it is the Wicarica people, which are the longest using uh, peyote culture uh, in the Americas going back over 5,000 years of continuous cultural development emergence from peyote use. All their mythologies uh, revolve around peyote as uh, one of the uh, key spirits um, and, um, and their um, sacred gardens are being depleted because of extraction, a great amount of consumption in the United States. Um, and also um, uh, agribusiness agri and mining is impacting the peyote fields of the Chihuahuan Desert where the Wijarica live. So it is incumbent upon um, Americans to decriminalize cultivation of peyote so that we can relieve the pressure on the um, indigenous communities of Mexico from their own natural sources of peyote being depleted. Um, and so this is a, a conversation that's being had in the United States. Our call is for policymakers around the United States to really try to understand peyote as a spiritual and um, important cultural resource, as opposed to something that needs to be punitively enforced against. All of our policies currently as the United States is about enforcement against peyote in one way or another, um, which is causing the depletion of peyote. And what we're encouraging is to shift towards a, um, a more awakened approach of looking at peyote as a cultural resource and spiritual resource, and then having a conversation about how do we prevent it from going extinct in the wild. Um, so cultivation of peyote is, is key. Um, and uh, we do that with um, San Pedro, for example, and it grows abundantly. Uh, so we have to do it with peyote. And that's just what I wanted to share with your listeners. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Is there, how does that line up with the, the Native American church and, and their, their councils and committees that are covered that are working on this? Yeah, so there's, uh, and this is a, a great question. So the Native American church, think of it as, uh, if you, you think about the Christian church, uh, there's a number of denominations or groups, factions within the Christian church. And let's just take out the Baptist church is about uh, 3% of the total Christian church denominations. The Native American church is really a, a number of independent chapters, uh, as well as uh, two other primary uh, factions or branches. One is Aquaba uh, Native American church or ONAC which is um, probably represents a third to half of the total Native American churches uh, chapters. And then there's National Council of Native American Church, which is a mis misnomer because the National Council of Native American Church is really only four churches out of the roughly 400 churches of, underneath the Native American Church. That particular small uh, group within the Native American Church, otherwise known as NICNAC or Na National Council of Native American Church, has taken a position that um, only indigenous people should engage in ceremony uh, with peyote and that uh, peyote should remain criminalized for cultivation as well as um, consumption only to be cultivated or used by um, tribal members. And at this point um, that simply can't sustain 
uh, enough peyote growth to prevent extinction in Mexico, particularly in the wild. So we have a situation where a small group that represents only about 1% of the total Native American church is calling for the um, uh, policies which will drive extinction in Mexican indigenous lands. Um, our, our perspective, my perspective, that comes from a place of trauma, of t- territoriality, territoriality. But for the most part, most Native American churches, and I've talked to a number of them, call for the um, continued cultivation of peyote to prevent extinction in the wild. One okay. just to add to that too, is that I think it's it's an interesting time frame we're in when we're trying to uh, reduce punitive um, sort of approaches to plant medicines that uh, the National Council on Native American Church is actually fighting for people to go to jail for growing a plant. And that's to me is, you know, it's, it's hard to sort of conceptualize really, you know, this is something that I've heard indigenous elders speak about for a really long time, you know, that nobody owns the plant, nobody owns the earth, nobody owns particular, you know, sort of um, approach to, to spirituality or sacredness, um, but that they're, they're actually fighting to, uh, you know, make sure that, you know, people would have to go to jail for growing a peyote plant is, is something that, you know, I'd much rather have spent the last two years in this conversation taking seeds of peyote and planting them everywhere with them than getting into a battle about who can cultivate or not cultivate and who should go to jail for cultivation and that type of thing. So, yeah. For listeners, I just want to clarify, the board of Decriminalized Nature is 60% Indigenous um, and um, uh, all of whom uh, either come from peyote growing regions or um, or have deep experience with peyote or both. My own ancestry is from Jalisco, which um, it, peyote was broadly used in, in Jalisco. Uh, and so my ancestry comes from that area. So the idea that the conversation, which is happening in California under Senator Scott Wiener's bill, he's restricted the, the voice of indigenous to only four people out of 26 million indigenous people in Mexico and the United States. And so as an indigenous person from Mexico, I have a concern about that because we have to be expanding voices of those who participate in policy making, not narrowing the voices of those who participate in policy making. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that is very interesting. Um, throwing people in jail for cultivating. Uh, the good news is I've, I've not met anybody who can actually grow a peyote plant. So maybe, maybe that will Maybe that will help them because it's not the easiest thing. It's not like a San Pedro. Although I have some people grafting peyote onto San Pedro, and that does seem to help it grow a little bit faster. But who knows what it, what effect it has on it? But thank you guys well, for sharing that. Just just one little addition to that too, which I think is interesting, is um, we're seeing a stance now not only just for peyote, but for all cacti containing mescaline. So we just heard recently um, in Santa Cruz that uh, IPCI, which is basically the Native American, the Na- National Council of Native American Churches Nursery, which is funded by David Bronner, which is uh, run by uh, executive director, is uh, part of MAPS Public Benefit Corporation. And they actually went to Santa Cruz and recriminalized. After they decriminalized all plants and mushrooms, they recriminalized all cacti containing mescaline. So the San Pedro. Really? So if you go to a Home Depot to buy your San Pedro, that's illegal now. If you go to a local nursery to buy San Pedro, that's in San Pedro, as Carlos was saying, grows really quickly. And as you were mm-hmm. saying, can be grafted with peyote buttons. And so um, so I, I don't really understand that perspective to take not only just peyote, but now all cacti containing mescaline to criminalize that. And so that's something we're going to be working on trying to shift and change in terms of Santa Cruz policy. All right. All right. Yeah, good. So along those lines, um, why don't we uh, wrap up here by telling us what, give us a you know quick history, all the awesome stuff you guys have done 
and what you're working on right now and how people can get involved. Is that me, Carlos? Yeah, carried on. So, <laughs> yeah, so so there's lots happening all over the U.S. right now. Uh, it's been really beautiful, obviously, helping out with your wonderful teams in Arizona. Sounds like Tucson's doing some great work and Phoenix yes. is going to be online soon and the statewide stuff going on there. I think we have about 40 to 45, maybe a little bit more active teams across the U.S. right now. Uh, we've passed uh, decriminalized nature's uh, related policy in about seven cities now. Um, you know, obviously Oakland, Santa Cruz, Washington, D.C., they got 76% voter approval. Ann Arbor, Michigan, oh. Washtenaw County, the public policy directive by the uh, uh, district attorney there expanded decriminalization out to the entire county. Um, there's, uh, and then also three different cities in Massachusetts since 2021, uh, with the help of another organization called Bay Staters, uh, which include Cambridge, Somerville, and Northampton, Massachusetts. Uh, we are helping out with uh, statewide legislation in Michigan. Uh, we're helping out with some statewide legislation in Vermont, and we have uh, probably, hopefully, three cities that will pass uh, something similar uh, to DM policy by the end of this year, including Arcata, California. Uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan is looking to support uh, the decriminalization of antigenic plants and fungi. Uh, we also have Detroit is coming online with a ballot initiative. Um, you know, in another city in uh, either Hazel Park or East Lansing are also looking pretty close to finishing before the end of this year. Uh, Michigan, California, Massachusetts, for whatever reason, seem to be uh, really uh, making a lot happen right now, which is great. Yeah. And there's a lot of cities throughout the U.S., like Missoula, like Portland, like, um, you know, obviously everything going on in Arizona. There's some places in, uh, in Vegas and Reno. Uh, we have some outreach in uh, Oklahoma, a bunch of places in Texas um florida atlanta a lot of places so um so that's that's been really exciting our our sort of job as decriminature is really to help empower local um, communities to engage in this practice so um bring policy together how do you introduce to city council members uh, we offer all the templates for free we do sit-in meetings with um, the local teams with the, with the city council members um, and those different types of things so basically everything that they need is available so it's just basically gather your team together um, figure out your city council process um, and uh, start start the process of introducing yourselves. And uh, we found that it's been really successful. I think we have 53 or 52 yes votes and one no vote uh, over all the different city councils across the U.S. right now. Wow. Um, so that's pretty impressive in terms of uh, educational uh, process that we're engaging in. Um, and then, you know, I, I tell a lot of people, you know, it's there's I've been amazed at how many city council members have been uh not only like basically saying, you don't have to convince me of the benefits of these plants. I mm -hmm. have a family member that's just healed on this, or I know some of the research, or maybe I've had an experience as a youngster, or maybe, you know, like the, the sponsor of the resolution in, uh, in Oakland, California, the one who really led the way is Councilmember Nogayo, and he comes from the Yakoi tradition. His grandmother was a curandera. And so like he was very mm. familiar with plant practices and healing potentials of plant medicines. And so a lot of times I just say there, there's probably city council members that are just waiting to be asked because they mm. can't present it themselves. But if you get a bunch of constituents together and come in and say, hey, this is something really important, then they can move forward and have that uh, opportunity to shift policy and that type of thing. So if you want to um, get involved, you go ahead and you can uh, access our website at decriminalizednature.org. Or you can go on our Facebook or Instagram. We do a lot of informational uh, messaging on Instagram. That's at Decriminalize Nature. Or reach out to us, uh, decriminature at gmail.com or decriminature at protonmail.com. Um, also, if you happen to uh, uh, 
uh, want to donate, we're always looking for some fundraising as well. So PayPal, or uh, we also are doing BitPay now. So uh, reach out to us uh, in terms of that. Um, but it's a really easy process. We give you a big organizer's handbook that has really all the information you need in there. And then we sort of uh, help you out the whole way. And I think at the end of the day, this is really important because for me, at least, and Carlos can maybe speak to, he, he's a little bit more knowledgeable and experienced in this world. But for me, it was totally foreign. Like I had no, no concept of how to even approach a city council, how to make shifts, how to make changes, how to right. you know, engage in this process. And I was disillusioned with the process. You know, government doesn't work for us. That type of thing. Yeah. And really realizing like, oh, wait a second, like come in, start talking to the, the city council members as their community members, as their people who also want to see healing in their community. Um, and um, and really just start that process. And it's been really amazing to see it, it move forward. And I think this extra layer, it's not only just decriminalizing entheogenic plants and fungi, but now we're giving tools for people to make change on the local level. And now yeah, I know what change about, they know how to gather a community, they know how to present it, they know how to do a resolution. And so all those different types of things are really important in terms of the overall um, sort of uh, approach of decriminalized nature. And you guys are very supportive. You, you will show up when you can, when your calendar allows. So it's not not just you've put out the entire game plan for people, but they can also come to you for resources to help get their things organized. And you guys have been extremely generous with with your time and your knowledge. Yeah, right on. And I um, just wanted to build on a little bit what Larry said there. You know, a key thing that happened in the United States and I think globally was um, a key milestone in the emergence of corporations as the um, sort of managing driving forces in, in American politics was Citizens United. Uh, deeming corporations as humans and uh, to be human, equal to humans. And um, what that really does is at the federal level, the power of corporations is immense. At the state level, it is also very much uh, very strong, but less so than the federal level. At the local level is still where citizens have a direct connection to their elected officials and the power still resides in the voting population. There's less of a tendency for corporations to buy off city council members. So uh, that's still where we retain much of our power to influence change. Uh, and I want to put that out there because what, the way we've approached our council members is as human beings. You know, all humans want to love. All humans want to feel joy. And uh, we've experienced love with family members or others. And so when we speak to council members, we speak to their, their hearts and their minds. We, give them, we lead with the science. And then we then give testimony that speaks to the, um, you know, the, the importance of this for healing people. And that usually hits them in the heart, if you will, and opens them up. And then we, we shift to the uh, ancestry and the fact that their ancestors and our ancestors, ancestors all use these plants to heal. And that's the way that we've been able to achieve uh, such a high success rate of, of getting yes votes at council. And so this works with all people, whether they're at the city state or federal, it just takes a little bit more work at the state because you're fighting against a lot of um, investment of corporations into the political machinery by way of donations and contributions and lobbyists. So you just have to work harder at the state level. Uh, but you'll get there in terms of the yes votes. You just have to do the educational work. Uh, in terms of um, advancing the cause nationally, we really do look at our local cities as sort of incubators of how to, how to advance the cause here in Oakland. After we decriminalize entheogens, we then um, passed a motion, a, a resolution to protect community-based ceremony because it's the least expensive but most effective way to help people heal who have severe trauma, be it veterans, unhoused, people who come from uh, domestic violence. Uh, and so we did that in December of 2020. Uh, now on the agenda for uh, Oakland, which we hope will also be a national model, is uh, going local with our um, our uh, economy, 
uh, our locals, our artisans, our stewards, our craftspeople who have really taken the time to build a relationship with these plants and listen to the wisdom of the plants are all local. You're not going to find them at the highest levels of corporations. You're going to find them at the lowest levels of community. And so uh, this year and next year, we'll be uh, passing legislation here locally that enables local economy to emerge and hopefully sets up barriers to the kind of corporate extractive model that we've seen under Prop 64 here in California to, to protect our relationship with um, entheogens. Nice. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank both you guys for everything you've done. And thank you for coming here and sharing your personal stories. Truly grateful for all the great work. And, you know, I personally look forward to working with you guys to get some great things done, you know, here in Arizona and watch what you guys do across the country. So thank you. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you, Stuart. Appreciate it. And looking forward to some decriminature Arizona passing. So exciting. Yes. Yes, absolutely. All right. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. That concludes this edition of the Stone Ape Reports. Thank you for listening. Please follow us on Instagram at Stoned Ape Comedy and subscribe to our newsletter at www.stonedapecomedy.com. Again, thanks for listening and catch you next time, Stoned Apes.